We are in the, on the third mark of um, what we're calling is a, a fit church, our fit church series, where we are looking and examining what does it look like to be a fit church. And the la- last few weeks, we have just begun to skim the surface, where we looked at how preaching is integral, I mean, it's essential in the body life of a church, that it's through preaching that faith is given, uh, through um, Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, as we see in Romans chapter two, verse, in Romans chapter ten, verse thirteen. It's not about sacraments. It's not about your baptism when when you were a baby or a baptism when you were older. Those those aren't the things that God uses. It's not about going through the motions and doing works. It's having our lives awakened by the word of God, as it's breathing the life of God into us to convict us of our sin and show us who Jesus is. And today we're moving into the heartbeat. I mean, the literal heartbeat of not just our church, but our very Christian life, and it's the gospel. Now, I'm reminded um, of a story of Vince Lombardi. Now, Vince Lombardi was the, the coach of the Green Bay Packers back in the day. And when he would start off, and he was a legendary coach, and he would start off each season by walking into the middle of the room of these gargantuan football players who were extremely menacing. They played football. And this is back in the day when these guys were hardened. I mean, they weren't just setting out for any and every injury. They'd play with broken teeth and broken ribs and concussions. And, and these guys were hardened, big, huge guys that other teams were even fearful of. And yet they would be quaking in their cleats when Lombardi would walk in the room. And he was a man... Um, Half, half, I mean, twice their age, but half their size, and yet they were afraid of him. And he would walk in the room, and he would stare at each one of those players just in a moment of silence. And this is just preseason. And then he would lift up a football, and he'd say, Gentlemen, this is a football. And, and you'd think it's very trivial, because he's starting off with something so basic. And these guys have been around for, for years. I mean, they played... Uh, High school football, they played college football, and they've been in the pros, and many of them were grizzled veterans. And yet, he was showing in those five words that we are going back to the very basics to understand what it is that we are doing. We're going to start in the most obvious thing that is possible. Now, as a church, the most obvious thing that we can sometimes forget about in the midst of everything else going on in our life is the gospel. It is the basics, of the foundation of everything else. And if God were here, he would extend the word of God to us and showing, ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. This is the very foundation of everything else that we do. Everything else comes from this, springs from this. It is our lifeblood. It is our purpose. It is the reason that we are here today. Everything else is secondary. The gospel is the very heartbeat of all that we do. But what is it? Can you define it? If I were to ask you that question, could you define the gospel? I mean, we, we think we all talk about it, we, we throw the word around, but when you're asked to define it, it becomes a little bit troublesome. Well, we, we stop and think to ourselves, well, what? Yeah, is Jesus Christ died? was crucified, and he was buried, or, and then rose the third day, and that's it. Is it? Or is there more? Much, much more. There is much, much more. Now, that's the, the iron it down part, but we're going to look today that it's, even in its smallest version, it's bigger than I think many of us understand it to be. So today we're going to look at what the gospel is, We're also going to look at what it's not. We're going to look and understand what it really means and what we should do with it. That's what we're going to do today. But before we go any further, let's pause for prayer, asking God to bless bless this time and open our hearts to receive what he has for us. Lord our God, we are reminded that of the truth of the gospel today, and yet... Though it's so simple that a child can understand, it's so profound and complex that theologians are left scratching their heads in wonder. Lord, today we come before you, pulling back the layers, 
asking you to truly implant the gospel in our minds, in our hearts, and what it means for us and for the world. Give us minds to understand, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hands and feet to do what the gospel is and what it says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, because the gospel is so immense, I'm not going to just focus on one passage. Though, though we're, we are kicking off with Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, we're going to be, I would ask you to keep your fingers nimble, your, your tips of your fingers moist, that you can be flipping back and forth, because today we're going to be going through a lot of different passages as we look and understand and building layer upon layer as to what the gospel is and what it is not. Now, before we really get into these texts, I want us to understand what the word gospel literally means. In Greek, the word is euangelion. Euangelion. And it, it is found 93 times in the English Standard Version. In the Greek New Testament, the word gospel is a, a, a translation of the Greek noun euangelou, which occurs 76 times. It means literally good news. It comes from the verb euangelizo, which is used 54 times, meaning to bring or announce good news. Now, both of these words are derived from another word called angelos, which means messenger. It's a messenger who would come with a, a, a news, and it usually was news of victory, like someone coming from war. And, uh, and we see this in the time of King David where people would be running to deliver the good news that they are victorious. And, and it was a messenger who would come with the message of gladness, message of victory. But it could also be used for political or private, uh, a private message that brought joy to one's heart. Now, we understand that basically if we really boil it down, we can just say good news. But good news in reference to what? I mean, think about that. We say it's good news, but good news in, for what? Before you can know the good news, what do you need to know? The bad news. The bad news. So if we are truly, before we can understand the good news, we have to understand the bad news, which means we need to recognize our dilemma. The situation we find ourselves in. Recognize our dilemma. It's about us. The gospel is written to us. It's for every single person in whom is the breath of life. Every single person that is made in the image of God, this message is for them. It's not for the religious. It's not just for one race. It's not for just one age. It is for everybody because everyone is in the same exact boat. Now, if we're to really understand the, the dilemma that we're in, we have to go back to the beginning. Now, we can see there are pictures of this, and I want you to turn with me for a moment to the book of Romans chapter 5, and that is page 942 if you have a pew Bible. But Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. And I want us to understand what happened, and we go back to the Garden of Eden, and the book of Romans is telling us what happened in the Garden of Eden and why it affects us. And we can see in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Now, Paul is writing this message in Romans, and he's saying that how we got in the boat that we're in was happened a long time ago in the book of Genesis because of Adam and Eve. And he's saying we are in this dilemma because of a curse that came from a fall. A curse that came from a fall to us all. It involves a curse from a fall, and it's to us all. It affects each one of us without exception. See, before, um, when Adam and Eve had been in the garden, there was no death. There was no destruction. There was no suffering. There was no sickness. They were living in complete communion 
with God in a state of innocence and purity and everlasting joy before the fall. It was when they partook of the fruit, the one thing God had told them not to do, and they did, that there were ramifications. There were consequences for what they did. And a curse came upon them. And death and sin entered into the world, and all their descendants received that same curse. And we are all descended. I mean, even evolutionary biologists believe that the entire human race ascended from two people. Even those who disagree with the biblical account of creation that we say laid out in the Word of God will allow and say that there is all of humanity traces back to one man and one woman. We see that then that we, we are all a part of this human race and we are uh, all suffer a curse from the fall. We are now born sinners. We experience pain, loss, disappointment, and whatever other unimaginable atrocities come with sin and death. We are now born sinners. Philosophers, sages, and authors have argued over whether the basic nature of man is good or evil, but according to the Bible, we are all born evil. Now, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3. It's page 941, so just flip a couple pages over from where you were in Romans 5. Romans 5. Now, we, we can see that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Not that we can't do good things. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that even in all of our actions at root, they are sinful. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the word sinned in Greek is pointing back to a moment in time with continuing results. For all have sinned in, in essence, Adam. We're born sinners, just as David said in Psalm 51.5. For in sin, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that he was born of an illicit relationship, but he was born in sin. Now, we might object. If we were in a courtroom and we were to read this scripture, it would say, this is an indictment of you, that you are born a sinner. You might object and say, then how can I be held morally responsible for what someone else has done? I mean, that's a question. That's not fair. Why am I held to an account because of something that my relatives did in the past? Before we even finish the words out of our mouth, God says, look at the second part of this passage. For all have sinned and, present tense, fall short. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is God's manifest beauty, his complete perfections, his holiness. His righteous and complete perfect standard of which we, who are made in His image, is demanded of us. See, in other words, God demands us to be perfect and to live like Him, and we can't. See, we are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. But yet, we still think of ourselves as not that bad. I don't know why that is. We think of ourselves as not that bad. We think of ourselves as a baseball player on third base. And we are looking at the home plate. We're looking at the pitcher, and we can see that the catcher and the pitcher aren't paying attention, and we think we're going to steal heaven. I think many of us do. We think we're going to steal into heaven. We're going to slide in. I'm in, God. Can't get me now. I, got, I scored. I'm into glory. It doesn't work that way. God, whose, whose complete nature is perfect, he's omnipotent, meaning he has all power, and he's omniscient and knows all things. There's nothing that can escape him. That one act, however seemingly small, will escape his, his knowledge and his involvement. See, we can see here and we have to acknowledge, not only do we have a curse from a fall, but we have received a condemnation that is fair. A condemnation that is fair. See, when we stand before God, there will be no excuses. I mean, I'm amazed at how well we are, we, how good we are at distorting truth and twisting things and the meaning of words and 
what it meant to us and how we apply it and what we thought it meant. And, and we use a lot of excuses in our world today. We are masters at this. I mean, children are masters at it as well. I didn't hear you. I didn't, that's not, I didn't think that's what you meant. No, you know it's what I meant. So we see then that, that we receive a condemnation because before God, we know and will realize that we are guilty in and of ourselves for what we have done. We received a curse from a fall and a, and a condemnation that is fair, and we are now under God's wrath. God's wrath. Have you dwelt upon the wrath of God? If I were to take you through some of the threads or episodes of God's wrath in the Old Testament, and we were to think that we would, we are under, without Christ, God's wrath, I think we would be so horrified that we would throw up. You know, in the Old Testament, we get a great picture of God's wrath, whether it's through the flood whereby God covered the earth to eliminate man because he was continually wicked. And by the way, I always laugh when, and maybe you've done this with your kids, and I don't mean this an indictment on you, but why is the ark such a popular thing to do in nurseries? Because if you think about it, it really makes no sense. Yes, the animals are going in, but you don't have pictures of drowning people because as all, the, I mean, humanity is drowning all around. This is an act of God's judgment. People had, there were no more excuses. They had turned their back on God. And after humanity was begun anew and through Noah's line, we see his wrath periodically throughout the Old Testament when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. Partly was sexual immorality or homosexuality. That was a huge part of it. But according to Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, they were also destroyed because of, because they were proud had excessive food, lived lives of comfort, and didn't take care of the poor and needy. You know, it's amazing to look at that and say it's an indictment just of homosexuality, which, again, that's a huge part of it. And we think, for those who don't struggle with that particular sin, we're like, ha-ha. But when we see that it was because they loved their luxury and didn't take care of the poor and the needy, we see that we are equally as indicted. We see a condemnation that is fair. And then we see the power that God wrought on Egypt when he brought the plagues upon the uh, Egyptians while the Israelites were in slavery. When he turned the water into blood or the frogs when they infested the land. And then lice was everywhere, flies, complete dark or livestock dying, boils, fiery hail, locusts, complete darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. And even after all of this, they, they didn't repent. They suffered and died because of it. Time and time again, we see throughout the Old Testament when God's wrath breaks out among the people whenever they turn from Him, whether it's for idolatry, which always leads to sexual immorality, a disregard for His laws and seemingly small things, people's hearts become hard. And then God's wrath comes out. I mean, I wonder now, in America, do we recognize when God has changed things? What, what I mean by that is this. Did you know that there is a drought going on in California that's been going on for the past three years? And you know, in Scripture, we see that God is in charge of the weather. Could it be that God is causing that drought to get people's attention? Yet we can ship stuff in. We think it's just a minor inconvenience. We don't recognize God being in charge of the weather. We have Doppler. But yet God is showing and, and will bring these things to completion in our lives to get our attention. I mean, the New Testament speaks of the coming wrath of God, which is upon those who refuse to believe in and accept Christ as the Savior of the world. We read that in, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us are under God's wrath. And in Romans, Paul wants us, warns us of this wrath from which we are to be saved. It's so terrible. I mean, the news is so bleak for us that the only way to escape this wrath is to believe in Christ to place our faith in Him, because this wrath will be awful. There will be no way to escape it. I mean, in the book of Revelation, you see people that are trying to die, but they can't. 
It's so terrible that they can't take it anymore. They just want to escape from it. It's so awful that they try to hide. And God says, no, I'm not going to let you find a way out. It's it. You're going to suffer it for all that it is. We don't talk about this. And we say that, oh, we have the preacher talking about uh, fire and brimstone. But you know what? That's part of Scripture. Yes, God is a God of love, and we need to talk about the God of love and the grace of God and the hope that we have in Christ. But God is a God of wrath. He's a God of wrath. You are, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. According to the word of God, we are all under God's wrath. So we have to understand that we have a curse from a fall, a condemnation that is fair. But even... In the midst of the curse that is brought upon Adam and Eve. And it's ground zero for death, destruction, and sickness, and suffering. That even in the midst of that, there's hope. I want you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. It's on page 3 if you have a pew Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, God is proclaiming the curse and consequence, and I'm not going to go through all of those right now. But he's laying out this curse, and he's speaking to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, embedded in this curse is a promise that we can just glance over and not see. See, he's saying, and it's interesting, when it says, he will crush your head. First of all, when he says your offspring and hers, it refers to the posterity of both Satan and Eve. Satan's offspring and then Eve's offspring. Eve's posterity is seen in the entire human race. But the language in the passage indicates that there is one individual who may represent the race as a whole. One descendant who is representative par excellence of our race. And when it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, who is the he who will crush your head? Well, this is no other than the Messiah. See, it's interesting. When it says he will crush your head, it's, the word is indicating he will defeat you, but yet he's going to die in the process. He's going to be struck in the heel. He's going to die delivering a death blow to you, Satan. And it's a picture of Jesus. And in theological circles, this is known as the proto-evangelium. The first proto-first gospel. This is the very first mention of the coming of Christ in the entirety of the Bible. One of the most important scriptures that we can ever hold on to. And he's saying, even in the midst of all this suffering, even in the midst of suffering all these consequences, there's a chance for a future. There's hope that I'm going to send one to you to save you. That there is a chance for a gospel that is coming. There is hope. This gospel was presented in the garden, and according to 1 Peter, it had been prophesied. And I could show you time and time again throughout the Old Testament prophecies that were pointing forward to the future coming of Jesus. And yet, it was purchased and personified by Christ himself, preached by the apostles, and proclaimed by Christ's followers for all time. But yet, we still have not said what the gospel is exactly. So I'd like us to stop, and we need to formulize or form, form a definition. Form a definition of the gospel. Now, there is not one specific passage that defines, us, defines it, but if there is, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That is on page 961. 961. Now, this is something that you, you might have heard if you have st- uh, stood at the gravesite for someone. And right before the body is uh, committed to the ground, this passage is often read. Actually, all of 1 Corinthians 15 is traditionally read. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 4, Paul says this, For I delivered to you 
as of first importance, primary importance, it's emphasized. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures that foretold that the Messiah was to come who would die on our behalf. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So, in essence, we know that he, He was foretold, He died for our sins on the cross, He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, we have to understand that He was becoming, He had become our substitute. We could see that God had accepted Christ's death and, and through it gave us His righteousness. And He was raised for our justification. Now, I want us to, I want to give you a, a long definition. I want to go to a long definition. Here's a long definition of the gospel. I'm going to give you a long one. You don't have to write all this down unless you can take shorthand. Then I'm going to give you a very short definition. The one and holy God made us in His image to follow Him. But we rebelled and merited sin and death. God sent His Son Jesus, born of a virgin, to usher in the kingdom of God by living a sinless life, thus fulfilling the law himself, and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him by dying on the cross. He was buried and rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been, had been exhausted. He then ascended into heaven where he waits for the consummation of his kingdom. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Now that is the exhaustive definition. And, and in this definition, we see that the gospel answers four questions. Who is God? Why are we in such a mess? What did Christ do, and how can we get back to God? You could put it in four ways. There's God, man, Christ, response. That's boiling it down. Now, I'll give you the short definition in a moment, but before that, I want to give some of John Piper's, former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, president of Desiring God Ministries, says, uh, The gospel is the good news that the everlasting and ever-increasing joy of the never-boring ever-satisfying Christ is ours freely and eternally by faith in the sin-forgiving death and hope-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. He also said, the gospel of Christ is the good news that at the cost of his son's life, God has done everything necessary to enthrall us with what will make us eternally and ever-increasingly happy, namely himself. And again, Piper says most succinctly, God is the gospel. That's what it is. God has given us himself. That's the gospel. Or I like how Tim Keller puts it. And I like this definition the most. And you can write this one down. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. That's a great definition. That we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, than we ever understood. We, we think of ourselves much better than we are. And according to the word of God, we are indicted and we received a condemnation that is completely fair. We are so bad, we don't realize how awful and sinful we are. But we think of ourselves as so great that we are God's gift. And that's the, the thing. We are more sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet, and this is the good news, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That we realize what we have in Christ. I don't think we understand that we can't contemplate the glories of what it is that he has done for us. So we have to understand that. It captures the essence of everything. But this is where we get a little messed up. I mean, we believe that a church should have the gospel at its center. And it should 
But that's not always the case. See, false teaching abounds now just as much as it did then, causing many to shipwreck their faith. I want us to go back to our passage for today. I told you we'd be turning back and forth quite a bit. And that's Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. That's on page 972. Galatians chapter 1. And Paul is saying this. He's writing to the church of Galatia. This is early on um, in his letters, one of his first, if not his first. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That there's a different gospel. That Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel, an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now it's interesting. He goes on and even brings it home for emphasis. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now in Greek, the word accursed is anathema, which means it's a cursed person. It's, it's centered to the wor- um, sentence to the worst doom, condemned to hell. This is, this is not something that he's playing around with, that he's soft and loose, and the lines are loose in what the gospel is. He's saying that these are different gospels that are distortions of the true gospel and taking people away from who God is. And I think that many of us have embraced false gospels and not realized it. Now, I'm going to go through a, a list of false gospels in our world today rather quickly. First of all, it's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. I mean, we have to reject these distorted versions of the gospel, but we have the prosperity gospel. This is Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Juanita Bynum, uh, Joyce Myers. These are, these are more prosperity teachers that, though they refer to the Word of God, take it out of context. And they distort the truth of it, and that makes it sound like God wants everybody to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And then they make God an, a genie that if you can summon up of faith, you can command God to do whatever you want him to do. That is the prosperity gospel. It is a false gospel, and it's, it's, it's a condemned gospel. Next, we have a, not just a prosperity gospel, we have a partial gospel. Now, a partial gospel is a gospel that wants God, but no holiness. That wants morality, but not obedience. That wants religion, but no demands of a relationship. That wants the outer respect, but not the inner response. This is a gospel that is the fire insurance gospel. That I can sign the line and everything else is optional. There is no such thing. Biblically speaking, you believed a lie if that's what you think. I can have Jesus and my sin, then you're a fool. And you are condemned. Because God says that he put away sin by the sacrifice of his son. And if you say I can live in sin, then you're saying that the crucifixion meant nothing in the face of God. It meant absolutely nothing. That he didn't die for sin. That I can live in it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. At all. And that's without exception for anyone. It's a partial gospel. It is not the full gospel of God. This is the gospel gospel in contemporary figures of Matthew Vines, Brian McLaren, Frank E. Schaefer, Tony Jones. There's some who say that who believe you can have Jesus and your sin at the same time, but that's not the case. Then there is the pluralistic gospel. The pluralistic gospel. Now this is held by Rob Bell and Dog Paget, who teach that everybody's going to be saved, and whatever you believe is true and is okay, as long as you're sincere. You can believe this. And people are attracted to it because it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't demand anything. It doesn't demand us to confront and teach other people about who Jesus is. There is no confrontation. I'm okay, you're okay, as long as you're sincere. That's true for you. That's great. I'm so happy that you're happy. And this is what we see in our world today. There's this pluralistic gospel that says that you can't talk, you can't confront, you can't evangelize, that everybody is fine, just stay where you're at, keep your religion to yourself so we can all get along. That is a pluralistic gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ because the scripture is very clear. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the God who is for everybody, who demands nothing, who wants nothing, and who offers nothing. Then there's the pop psychology gospel. 
This is the gospel according to Oprah. This is the renew your spirit. This is basically, and you see this a lot within churches, where people are giving five ways to a better love life, six ways to a healthier marriage, have a new kid by tomorrow, whatever you need it to be. It's all pragmatic. But it's left and bereft of the crucifixion, death, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ and the demand of that meritorious death in the sight of God upon our lives. It's a pop psychology. And we see this in a lot of churches today where they're all, all happy and great. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be happy. We should be joyous after all. But there's a demand of our life to take up our cross daily, to die to ourselves. And yes, the, uh, the Scripture does offer us a better way to marriage and financial uh, peace and all of these different things, but it all finds its root in the gospel. Without that, nothing else matters. Then there is the, this is a little bit more of indictment on us. This is the patriotic gospel. This is the God bless America gospel. Now, I'm not saying that God shouldn't bless America, but this is the gospel that every politician somehow refers to in every election cycle. This is the God of certain political parties, but not necessarily the God of the gospel. This is the God that, that takes the, the founding fathers and dubs them and anoints them as apostles. The patriotic gospel, God and country, where God is pro-everything the United States does. That is not the gospel. It's not wrong to be patriotic. I'm not condemning patriotism. I'm for patriotism. What I'm saying is you can't unite it with the gospel. They're two separate things. So we're not a patriotic gospel. Jesus demands our allegiance, demands our life, demands that we take up our cross and follow him. Then there is the politically correct gospel. This is the gospel that doesn't want to offend anybody. The gospel that is nice to people as long as it doesn't intrude or demand anything. It's the gospel without hell. A gospel that doesn't preach on sin or refuses to say that you must honor your marriage or live a holy life or be above board in your business and in all interactions, to be a person of integrity. It's not the gospel of God. So we have to get back to the true biblical gospel and understand that it's, it's dimensions, that it's much bigger and grander than we ever thought. So we re- reject distortions, but we have to understand its dimensions, that it's perfect, that God has made it to be perfect, that it's been planned. It's not a covering up of a mistake. I encountered a man. I was traveling in Egypt, um, uh, in 2006. And I uh, was doing a study trip studying the early African church. It was fascinating. And as I was interacting, one of my uh, roommates that I had, we started interacting, and he believed that God had used the cross because of a mistake that he made in the garden. And I'm like, that's bad analogy, Patrick. It's a bad illustration. That's bad. Because it's, it's not understanding what the gospel really means that it's much bigger than you could ever imagine and that you can't take part of it away. You can't have just this part and not other parts of it. You have to have it as a complete structure. It reminds me of the film Amadeus. Anyone ever see that film? Amadeus, done in 1984, starring F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse. In the movie, it's talking about the genius of Mozart and just how much of a genius he was. And in, in the film, Mozart's wife, uh, Constanzi, is forced to go to Mo- Mozart's dr- um, rival, Antonio Salieri, um, in order to procure uh, a teaching position and thus financial relief. They were always in financial crisis. And she does this secretly because she, she knows that her husband wouldn't approve of this. So she goes and takes some of uh, just a folder filled with Mozart's music to show as a sample to Salieri how qualified he is, even though Salieri knew he was more than qualified. And while they're talking, Salieri asks her to leave this folder behind so he can look over them and just get back to her at a different time. She responds, and she says, It's impossible, uh, I'm afraid. Wolfgang would be frantic if he saw that these were, they were missing. Um, if he found those were missing, you see, those are all originals. Now, he, he's amazed, and he says, Wait, th- these are originals? And he glances over the folder and he opens it up and looks over the music in disbelief and says, these are originals? And she responds, yes, sir. He doesn't make copies. 
And then he picks up the page, looks intently at the page as his mind begins to translate the, the words and notes on the page into music in his mind. And, and he steps up from the table where he's sitting and is utterly astounded at what he sees before him. He violently turns from one page to the next and says in his mind, astounding. It was, it was beyond belief. These were first and only drafts of music, but they showed no correction of any kind. Not one. He had simply written down music already finished in his head. Page after page of it, as if he were taking dictation. And music finished as no other music has ever finished. Displace one note, and there would be diminishment. Displace one phrase, and the structure would fall. Caught up in the ecstasy of the music, he lets the folder slide from his fingers to the floor. And Constanzi, confused and surprised and slightly bewildered, asks Salieri, is it not good? He looks at her in a in complete and unguarded moment, says, it's miraculous. See, what was true for Mozart in his music is true for God with the gospel. And that, it's not, it's not a mistake, it was perfect. It was planned since the foundation of the world before the Garden of Eden. And if you take part one aspect of the gospel, the whole thing collapses. That it's beautiful, miraculous, perfect, and wonderful. We have to understand its dimensions. Perhaps the most misunderstood part or the most miraculous part is that we can see that the gospel involved a penal substitution. What I mean by that is this. Jesus took our place. The Son, one of the persons, excuse me, of the Trinity, stepped out of eternity past into eternity present and assumed the flesh of man, a man, but he didn't have sin. He came to identify with us and take our place, taking upon himself our sin, our suffering, making our payment, and taking our penalty upon himself. He was our substitute. I mean, if we want to get an idea of what God thinks of sin, we need to look back at the cross. He came to die. He had to die. Can God die? No. In God's deity, he cannot die. In Christ's deity, he cannot die. But as the God-man, the man can die. And as God, he offered up the price and condemnation that man deserved. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. For our sake... He made him to be, to be sin. Or for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Christ himself not only became, that took our sin upon himself, but he became the essence of sin, enabling us to have a righteousness with God. So we have a penal substitution that he took our place. We also have a, a peaceful cessation. A peaceful cessation. You know, the Bible says that we were at war with God and it was through Jesus Christ that we could have peace. We saw this some time ago and I've shared this story recently. And Don Richardson, who had been a uh, missionary to Papua New Guinea uh, several years ago, was working with a certain tribe in uh, Papua New Guinea. And as he was there, he kept sharing the gospel and translating it and they weren't getting it. They were laughing at him and he was trying to find a way to illustrate the truth of what God had done in and through Christ. And as as he's contemplating this, a war is declared on the village by another uh, neighboring village, which was much more fierce and hostile. And the people were alarmed. And the chief of the village took his son, his baby infant son, and then ran into the other village holding up this child and declaring in terms that this was a peace child. And in their culture, to stop hostility, the the chief would give his son to be raised by the people. And as long as they had that son, there would be peace between the two tribes, thus ending any hostility. And he says, that's it. That God offered his son as a peace child between he and us. That we were at war with him. And he declares peace by offering his son that we can have peace with him. And that Christ himself becomes our peace. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 on page 977. Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament, latter part of your Bible. The Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, writes, 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the, ho- the hostility. In other words, this, God is no longer mad at you. That if you have Christ, you are no longer under God's wrath. Peace has been declared. So we have a peaceful re- cessation. We also can see that there is now a permanent reconciliation. Go back one verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Don't look at verse 14. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That We have been reconciled to God. We no longer need to be enemies. We can have peace with God. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we've been reconciled. We're no longer at enmity or odds with God. So the gospel offers us a penal substitution, a peaceful cessation, a permanent reconciliation, and a present emancipation. A present emancipation. Go to Romans chapter 6, verse 22. Romans chapter 6, verse 22, page 943. And and we're going to see here that we've been freed from sin. And we see within Scripture, very many, oftentimes embedded in the Old Testament are what we call types. Now, I don't think many of us in this room have ever thought of what a type is, but a type is something that foreshadows something that is to come. Moses is a type of Jesus. When Moses led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, it was pointing to Christ leading us and delivering us out of bondage to sin to our past life. And the waters are symbolizing the the waters of judgment, baptism, of which we pass through. Just like Noah is also uh, a type of Christ, and, and even the waters of judgment there, according to First Peter chapter 3, are also referring to baptism, the waters of judgment passing over. And these are all types in the Old Testament. Truths embedded foreshadowing a greater truth that was to be actualized and realized in the person of Christ. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, Paul writes But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You've been set free from sin. That the Bible and the gospel allows us to be set free from sin. That it no longer has power over us. Now, we still might have the presence of sin in our bodies, but we no longer have to obey It's impulses that we can put to death the misdeeds of our sinful nature by appropriating Christ's resurrection, his death, and his resurrection as our own. That's why Paul says, For um, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 that we can, be, we can be emancipated, that you no longer have to be a slave to your sin, whether it's pornography, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's alcohol addiction, whether it's you're maybe an overeater, maybe you're an undereater, maybe you're, you're spending like crazy, maybe you're an entertainment addict, maybe you're some, some substance addict, maybe it's hate within in your heart, whatever it might be, that God can set us free from that. That he can emancipate us from our old way of life. That we have a present emancipation. That he sets us free. And he also offers us a powerful transformation. A powerful transformation. That he offers to make us new creatures. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, on page 966, you don't have to turn there, it's a very short verse. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. It's a powerful transformation that you're no longer the person that you were. That if God saves you and His gospel comes into you, then the Spirit of God comes into you, transfer, I mean, changing you in a moment. And that you're no longer just you. You are becoming God's child. And He is, in essence, transforming you from your old way of life by conforming you to the image of His Son by the Spirit that is in you. You get that? He's making us into little Jesuses. That's what He's doing. That when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
By placing your faith in him, he places the spirit of God to make you look like Jesus. He wants you to look like Jesus. That's why another reason you can't continue in your sin. I mean, can you imagine Jesus continuing on in his sin? In, in the sin that you're doing? No, we cannot do that. A present emancipation, a powerful transformation, a promise beyond our imagination. A promise beyond our imagination. See, the gospel gives us heaven, and the reason heaven is heaven is because who's there? Jesus. It's because Jesus is there. It will never be boring. There will always be joy. And it will be greater than the greatest pleasures on earth. As the singer Chris Rice used to say, deep enough to dream in brilliant colors I have never seen. We will see, hear, taste, and feel such pleasures that are beyond anything that anyone has ever experienced on this side of eternity. And my contention is this, that if people were able to experience the pleasures of heaven in this life, no one would ever turn from Christ. We can take peace and comfort knowing that there is also now no possibility of condemnation. The gospel says that there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you know that? This is a scripture for you to memorize, by the way. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Found on page 944. If you're still writing the other one down, it's still a possibility, no possibility of condemnation. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, on page 944, we read this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, Jesus assumed our flesh, walked with us, and died the death that we were supposed to die so that we can be set free from sin and death that it no longer has any power over us. A few weeks ago, I used the illustration of the shadow passing over the car or having the car hit you. I don't know if you remember that. When it was Donald Gray Barnhouse was trying to illustrate what death was to his children after his wife had died. And in a moment, in great wisdom, he said to the kids about this truck that just passed by and a shadow passed over them. He said, kids, which, is, which would you rather have, the shadow pass over you or, I mean, the shadow hits you or the car hits you. And they said the shadow. And he said, that's what happens to the Christian who trusts in Christ. Is that you have the shadow hit you. But for those who don't have Jesus, get hit by the truck. That the shadow passes us over. We have no possibility of condemnation. And for when you sin, and we all are going to sin, when you fall, and when you are repentant, you can be assured that Jesus is saying to you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we live in sin and actively pursue it, but we put it to death because we know it costs the Son of God his life. And he gave his life so we could have life, that we wouldn't live in bondage any longer that we have no possibility of condemnation. And now, once we have received Jesus and believed in this gospel, it requires, and God requires, our personal proclamation. Our personal proclamation. Do you know that everyone in this room that is trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior is without exception required to testify about who Jesus is? Every single one of us. There is no one exempt. You know, it's interesting um, I, I was, uh, we were looking at a, uh, purchasing a house recently, and we were talking about um, all of the different things in purchasing a house, and we were looking at it, and, and, and looking at one thing that everyone hates when you, when you do a mortgage is what? What's the one thing that you don't always look to and expect to pay, and you have to pay it every year, no matter what, without exception? There we go. Taxes. Taxes. Now, there's, there's interesting about taxes. You can get a few things called exemptions right? You can get a homestead or homeowner's exemption and get your fee reduced. Or if you're a senior citizen, you can have a senior, uh, senior exemption and get your taxes reduced. And it means that you don't have to pay as much. Did you know with the gospel, there are no exemptions? 
Does, I don't have enough education. I like the education exemption. Sorry. I'd like the, the uh, busy parent exemption. Sorry. I would like the theological exemption. I would like the, the race exemption. I would like the, the age exemption. There are no exemptions. None. We all, without exception, are to testify personally about what God has done in our lives, according to Matthew 28, 19 through 20, which is the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, the gospel requires, this is my last point, is that we submit to its demand. And it's a demand. Today, in our very tolerant, politically correct world, God, you know, we might say, God is offering you an opportunity. It is an opportunity. I'm not denying that, but it's also a demand. It's God talking. And this demand requires us to repent of our former way of life. That's the turning point of the gospel. It requires us to turn. We cannot hold on to our sin and have Jesus as well. Repentance is not something that is separate from the gospel. Recently, we were having a conversation um, among us as a staff, and uh, there was a, a thought that had uh, come in, um, into the discussion that is repentance a work? If we're saved by faith alone, then is repentance a work? I Meaning it's something separate from faith. But I like how C.S. Lewis described it. He said it's not a work, it's simply a description of what turning to God looks like simply a description of what turning to God looks like. It's not separate from faith, that it's what faith in action does. It turns from sin, that we have to repent of our formal way of life, and then next we have to receive the free gift of God. Receive the free gift of God. That we have to believe it, we have to receive it by calling on the name of the Lord, believing in Him, and we receive that free gift of God. And how do we receive it? It's just like getting the gift under the Christmas tree. What do you have to do to get, under, to get to the gift of the Christmas tree? You have to kneel. Just like we have to kneel. The idea is humbling ourselves to receive that gift that God has for us. And then God gives us to it, and he gives us to something greater than we can imagine. So that's the gospel. And it's even bigger than that. We've only scratched the surface. I can't tell you how many books that I have in my office that are just dealing with this truth and how wonderful and magnificent it is. And we've only given a small taste. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel, the wonderful, life-changing, life-giving, grace-saturated, Christ-centered, God-glorifying, all-satisfying gospel is made available unto each one of us what do we do with it? Do we believe? Do we not? Do we live that truth out? We need to ask God to change us and give us, by the power of His Spirit, working in and through us, the power to walk worthy of the calling that God has given unto us, that His name might receive glory and that we might increase in joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we've only begun to scratch the surface. Lord, we've We've eaten a lot of steak today, spiritual meat. Lord, help us to digest it. Help us to take it in. Help us to savor each bite that we've received. If we might truly understand this wonderful, life-changing gospel. Lord, we know that it's, again, simple that a faith that a child could believe. And Lord, sometimes we get overwhelmed with all of these truths that we don't think that we can understand it. But Lord, help us to see and see you. And just as it was when the disciples were on the mountain of transfiguration and after everything disappeared, they just saw Jesus. Lord, may we just see you. Just see you, place our faith in you, trust in you, asking you to grow us and, and transform us that we're no longer the way that we once were but we are becoming more and more like you each and every day. Help us not to let sin take root in our lives. Help us to understand the severity and the serious nature of it by looking at the cross at what it is that you have done, that we might uh, put away sin. And Lord, may we live in the truth and the light of what it is that you have done in us, what you want to do through us, and that how you long to grow us for your glory and our joy. 
And Lord, may we begin to taste and see how great and how good you are. And may the truths that we have learned today end up satisfying and saturating us and just nourishing our body throughout the week that we might go forth changed in awe of you for what you have done and what you want to do through us. Forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we fall. Forgive us when we're dull and dumb and disobedient. And help us live the truth out. In Jesus' name, amen.